Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. KMOX is at your service. Welcome to the St. Louis Composting Garden Hotline. Now, here's your host, Mike Miller on KMOX. Yes, folks. Good gardening and welcome. Thanks for stopping by. We'll be taking a good gardening stroll shortly. 314-436-7900 or 1-800-925-1120. Questions, concerns, or comments. And, Mr. Kelly, before you take off. Yes. The forecast is saying we could have some disastrous circumstances starting tonight. So does that mean you're staying downtown? Uh, I am considering it, but I talked to Brian Thompson about that. He thinks by tomorrow morning uh, when I come in, it shouldn't be too bad. But how about getting back then? Oh, I can hang out all afternoon if I have to. Yeah. Um, But now going to church tomorrow, he said, could be interesting. So, I mean, for me personally, it shouldn't be bad. Uh, he says it's not going to be like a blizzard. I mean, we're talking two to four inches over about a 12, 14-hour period. Oh. So, but you know how it is. Right. You Especially know? you got to do a lot of bridges. Yeah, yeah. And then you don't have the rush hour traffic that once you start having problems, it really compounds itself. Right. So the truck should have room to work. So, but I think the main thing is for people who go to church on Sunday mornings or go somewhere else on Sunday mornings, about that time of day, just keep an eye on things. You may want to decide, you know, it's worth it going to confession and saying, I missed Mass rather than risking your life. But that's a personal decision. <laughs> Very true. I'm just curious how, you know, if you don't you go to confession, then, you know, you just, then, you know, you'll just have to. Ask forgiveness. Uh, well, thank you very much for that insight. <laughs> With weak in religion, I'm Fred Bottenheimer. No. Yes, folks, on Saturday morning we get together and we have a roundtable discussion about what's impacting your backyard. What's going on in that side yard between you and your neighbor? How about your front yard? Oh, not as nice as what maybe you like. Especially the garden space. A taste of the tropics. Those houseplants inside, how are they doing? And uh, what is a potting mix versus a potting soil? How to improve your soil so your plants will have a better chance of withstanding weather like we've been having this winter. This winter has been absolutely insane. And uh, how about the winter damage on your broadleaf evergreens, your boxwood, your hollies, and things like that? Uh, Do you go out and prune yet? No. Wait a second. And when are the bugs and diseases going to start showing up? Well, maybe they started emerging And maybe they're going to get frozen. Who knows? But usually those bugs and diseases are pretty smart. They know how to work their way through the weather. And uh, use this information and with my thoughts, and you can orchestrate and solidify some options and make the final judgment on what you want to do in your landscape, your garden, or in your home. This is your show, by the way, and I appreciate you for inviting me over or inviting me into your home inviting me into your car or wherever you're listening. Another important player is Greg Harvey. He's here producing again today. We've got a little bit of a new system here, so uh, it may be a little bit awkward on how we talk to you, take your calls and everything else, but don't make that let you hesitate or don't let it, don't, 
hesitate in calling in relationship to that. Greg will handle it. He's very good at all of this stuff. I'm Mike Miller. I've been hosting the Garden Hotline since 1994, 25 years. I've written five gardening books during that time as well, and uh, two are currently available at various locations, and I write monthly articles for the Missouri Gardener magazine. And during the week and weekends as well, I do landscape consulting, which I call a walk and talk. If you'd like to schedule one at your home, you can go to my website, MikeMillerDesigns.com. On the homepage, there's my email address and phone number where you can reach me. And uh, then we can set up a time where I can come to your home. Today, I'm headed to West County, actually Glencoe. I didn't know that part of West County was Glencoe. It's, uh, hmm, I know there's Glencoe. I grew up out there. But it has its own zip code. Ooh, impressive. Anyway, Good Gardening Stroll is brought to you by St. Louis Composting, 636-861-3344. I headed out. The sky was really, really dark. I thought it was going to be clear because of the temperatures and everything else, but uh, apparently not. But uh, you could start to see this dawn was rising. I headed off 55 onto Walnut and veered downhill to the east where a new... Newly installed bald cypress trees. They are supported by posts and wires and hose pieces of hoses to prevent any kind of rubbing of the wire on the bark or the trunk. There's cobblestone granite stone patches. They mingle in with the new hardscapes. The walkways, the streetlights are angled towards the west. They're really kind of wild and crazy looking. And uh, the reflecting lights of the water... On the, on the Mississippi, really made it kind of spectacular. Rivers current was splashing on the shore of the, guess what, St. Louis waterfront. And a driftwood of all sizes and pieces and shapes and everything else added texture to the river's edge. Moss was spreading underneath some of the bald cypress trees, some of the ones that had been planted a little bit longer. And the arch right there sweeping up, down, and all around. The downtown buildings, yes, they really looked unique in shape, especially with the sky and the arch looking basically back through. A jogger goes by, hmm, across the, or using the bicycle pedestrian walkway. Tractor trailers, you can hear a humming across the Poplar Street Bridge. And along the West Walk, you can see where the ornamental grasses have been cut down already. The old blades were laying there. Crows were calling out to their friends. And there was a sign at the bottom, which is at the north edge of, I guess, well, it's on the east side where the north and south walkways kind of slope down. And it explains the Gateway Arch National Park commemorates St. Louis's really very important role in the westward expansion of the U.S. And uh, it's just kind of amazing. And that all happened in the 19th century. And there's information which states this particular location on the arch grounds. There's a map of the arch grounds. So this is location number 11. And if you needed help, you can contact them, like if you're lost or whatever it happens to be. And also it's in Braille as well. Bird activity increases as the sky gets lighter and lighter. So it was time for me to go. Mike Miller, KMOX Garden Hotline, back after these messages. The only way you can take KMOX with you is with the Radio.com app. Download it today and listen to us anytime, anywhere. 
This is the St. Louis Composting Garden Hotline with your host, Mike Miller, on KMOX. Yes, folks, we just had a caller, and my apologies. I'm going to have two apologies, but this first one is related to what I was just talking about. It is not the Arch Grounds. It is the Gateway Arch National Park. So... Who calls it the Arch Grounds? I do. What difference does it make? Well, not a whole lot. But it is officially Gateway Arch National Park. That kind of rhymes. I guess that's why they did it that way. Also, last week, apparently, or maybe it's been for a couple weeks, you know, you know, you know, you know. Apparently, I got hung up on using you know a lot, and somebody sent me an email saying, Mike Miller, you're using you know too much. So no more you knows. You know? No more you knows. No, you know? No, I don't know. You know. (laughs) You know. So anyway, two apologies. I should be much more professional than I am. Hmm. I'm just a man of the earth. So anyway, let's go to Troy, Illinois, and that's where Dave lives. Dave, how are you today? Hello. Hello. Hey, this is Dave. How are you doing? Very good. How are you? Um, well, is this Mike? Yes. I'm sorry, Mike. I didn't hear your introduction. Anyway, um, uh, what I have is I have a very large lawn, um, like five acres, and I don't try to micromanage it, just mow it, try to keep it looking nice. I have an area in the front that has a lot of zoysia, and um, it is being invaded by what appears to me to be, and I'm pronunciation may be wrong, Lespedesia. Are you familiar with that weed? Yeah, it's a broadleaf weed. Um, maybe I have it wrong. It, it looks like a very small leafed weed that grows just right close to the ground, like a creeping type of uh, something creeping like it. So that's probably not Lespedesia. Is it green right now? Uh, no, I don't think it is, Mike. So it's not chickweed? Um, well, it, I don't know. Maybe it's chickweed. Maybe I am identifying it wrong, but it's very, very small little leaf. That just very teeny little leaves when it is growing, you know, in the in the, in the warm weather. When I looked at it last uh, last summer, mm-hmm. and it, it, anyway, I didn't think anything could, could fight zoysia. A very very healthy zoysia area, but it is in, it is actually taking over that zoysia. Well, it sounds like an annual weed. So what you need to do is when the fourth, I don't know exactly which one it is. There's a couple, there's two different types of annual weeds. One is a cool season weed and one is a warm season weed. The cool season weeds germinate, their seeds germinate in early September or late August or whatever. So you need to put a pre-emergent down this upcoming late August to take care of if it happens to be a cool season weed. But what you need to do right now is go and get a pre-emergent and have it ready. So as soon as a yellow forsythia is in bloom in your neighborhood, then you want to put the pre-emergent down in this area where this this annual weed is. I'm pretty darn sure it's an annual weed. And so you have to put the application of the pre-emergent down twice, once in the spring when the yellow forsythia is in bloom and a second time when we're looking at mid to late August. And that should take care of the problem. It's not going to necessarily eradicate it immediately, meaning you're going to get rid of it in one year. It may take two years of application. But that's probably what I'd advise you doing. 
Okay, and that won't ha- that will not have any impact on the zoysia. No, all it does is you cannot put you're not going to put zoysia seed down anyway. But all it impacts no. is anything that's germinating from seed, any kind of weed, any kind of anything, any kind of grass. That's why you. I mean, there are a few, but not many uh, pre-emergence. What they do is just kill seeds, whether it's lawn seed, whether it's weed seed, it doesn't matter what it is. As they come up, what the pre-emergent does is create a phosphorus barrier on the surface of the ground. As a seed pops open, it kills them immediately. Okay. Well, we'll give it a shot. Great. Good luck with that. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, you think uh, thick zoysia is going to be something that is going to make it so weeds are impossible. But in the, with our weather and everything else, anything can possibly happen. Even in thick grass, whether it's zoysia, whether it's fescue, whether it's bluegrass or anything else. So just kind of remember that as a circumstance. And, you know, staying on top of it really makes a big difference. So the pre-emergence, yes. Again, yellow forsythia in bloom, that's when you put it down. Or if you want to buy a soil thermometer, it's when the soil temperatures get, you know, at 50 degrees or a little bit above 50 degrees. That is a soil temperature that triggers seed germination. And also it's a soil temperature that triggers yellow forsythia blooming. That's why I make that analogy. In the summertime, mid to late August, there's no plant that I can say, just watch for this particular plant. But uh, basically, mid to late August, that's when you put the pre-emergent down. So there's two completely different types of weeds. They have nothing to do with each other. And that's sometimes what has happened over the years. People don't understand having those two different sequences of completely different weeds makes it a big, big difference. So now, all right, good luck with that. Thanks for your help. Yep. Thanks, Dave. And what you need to do with your own landscape, too, is, you know, keep an eye out. Just watch for everything. But right now, I would say everybody needs to get a soil sample taken and get a soil test done. I keep hammering on this, but it makes a big difference. I was at a house very near where I live in the city, and they had a soil test done two years ago, which is fine. But they've done other things in their landscape, in their bed spaces, in their lawns and everything else in these two years. So my first recommendation was for them to go and get another soil test done to see what kind of changes has been made by the care and maintenance program they've, you know, they've chosen to do. So just watch out for that. And the soil test really indicates maybe you've got some real problems, but the problems could be what you're actually doing, what you would think would be positive. Like part of their soil test, it wasn't excessive, but very high levels of phosphorus or potassium. That can have a, you know, a bad impact on your root systems of your plant material. So you think you keep putting fertilizer down, and that's great, but you, fertilizer you put down should be very specific on what your, you know, what your plant material needs, and that's indicated by a soil test. Also, doing a core aeration followed by spreading compost is a really, really important thing to do as well. Even if you've got a very, you know, pretty good lawn and everything else, it's still every couple of years do a soil, you know, soil coration followed by a quarter or a half inch of uh, compost. So is that uh, Max? Max in South County, how are you today? Hey, thanks for taking my call. Sure. I appreciate it. Hey, a quick question for you. I've noticed a few of these lawn service trucks 
spraying uh, lawns in my subdivision already, and I don't think the forsythias are were blooming this past week. What uh, good is it to spray this time of year, and what would you be spraying for? To be honest, I don't know. I'm assuming they're probably putting a pre-emergent down because they have a really tight schedule and they want to get it down. But, you know, a lot of times it could be, you know, just more or less a waste because it could be too early. And then if we have severe rains and anything else, it could really dilute, you know, the pre-emergent as it goes down. I'm assuming they're putting down a liquid and not a granular type of pre-emergent. Right, it's a liquid with a tank, I believe. Right, and so I'm I'm not exactly sure what they're putting down. It could be a pre-emergent, and maybe the one that they have because it's sold to you know professionals only. Maybe it can handle you know our weather circumstance. But it's like anything; if you get it down too early, it's going to not do what you hope it's going to do. So I'm guessing pre-emergent, but I don't know that for sure. Yeah, the other thing is, uh, I was kind of surprised they put on some lawns with it, had a lot of leaves on them yet. I, what good would it do to put it on lawns with leaves? Yeah, it doesn't do much good because it's not going to get onto the ground. And especially yeah, if those leaves either blow or are raked up or chopped up with a mulching mower, then the pre emergent does nothing. If okay. it is a pre emergent, well, or really anything, whatever they're putting down. Well, you kind of confirmed what I was thinking, so thanks a lot, Mike. Appreciate it. Sure. (laughs) And also, here we go. Let's take a look at some of these uh, weeds. The annual cool season weeds. So, in other words, these are the ones that you'd put a pre-emergent down in mid to late August. Henbit, dead nettle, common chickweed, annual bluegrass, Persian speedwell, a type of clover, Shepherd's Purse, the common chickweed, the house I was at near where I live, they had chickweed all over the place. And especially in the planting beds because they hadn't put any kind of pre-emergent at all in the planting beds. So that's, you know, and what these things do, they don't care how cold it gets. It could get 50 below windshield and they're still going to be able to survive. So they grow all fall. They sort of go a little bit dormant as far as flowering and everything during the most severe part of winter. But then they start flowering, and they will continue to flower and put seeds out all the way up until the weather gets warm. Then they're killed off by warm air temperatures or warm soil temperatures. And then they're gone as far as what you think, but they've dropped who knows how many seeds during that time. Now, the seeds that you're going to kill by putting a pre-emergent when the yellow forsythia is in bloom are things like ragweed, knotweed, spurge, lamb's quarter, carpetweed, crabgrass, goosegrass, foxtail, some of the violets. That's, you know, if it's, they're coming back from seed and planting. So those are the ones that are the warm season weeds. So in other words, they'll be germinating when the soil temperatures get to be about 50 degrees And then they start growing, and they'll keep growing until the weather starts getting cold. Then they disappear. But all that time, they've been flowering, dropping seeds, and everything else. So just understand there are two different sequences of weeds that pre-emergent can help control. But you have to put the pre-emergent down two different times a year to actually get that control. So Mike Miller, KMOX Garden Hotline. If you have any questions, concerns, or comments, 314 436-7900 or 1-800-925-1120.
Welcome back to the St. Louis Composting Garden Hotline. Once again, here's Mike Miller on KMOX. Back to the phones we go, and Chris is on the road. Chris, how are you today? Hello, Chris, are you there? Oops, I can't hear you. Okay, can you hear me now? Yeah, now I can hear you. All right, great. Uh, Hey, um, what I wanted to find out, I have a uh, a property with some horses on it, and um, they have really compressed down the ground around a lot of areas. And what I, and I heard you talking about core aerating for years. So what I was thinking about doing is getting a core aerate three point core aerator that could go on a tractor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to see if that made sense. Um, also, then um, two other questions is when would be a good time to do that, and the other is can I pick some of those up and go have the soil test done that you talked about. Yeah, you can put you know pick them up for the soil testing, yes, but just make sure there's no grass, no roots, or anything like that. You just want to make it sure that it's only soil; it doesn't have any kind of other debris in it, like horse manure or whatever else. So oh, that I got you. that would be fine. And when you do, you collect them, and then what you want to do is blend them together. Don't just leave them as separate pieces. And that's for anybody that takes a soil test, whether they're digging, you know, from a coeration standpoint like you, or they're actually just pulling the sod back or pulling the mulch back and then taking a soil sample. They all have to be blended together to get a good analysis. And as far as a coeration, that will certainly help. But with horses or with dogs or anything else that kind of have really paths they go back and forth on, uh, it, it's not going to make it so you're going to be able to get anything to grow in those spots. Okay. All right. Thank you. Certainly. Thanks, Chris. And now let's go to Tom. And Tom lives in Afton. Hi, Tom. Okay. Tom, are you there? Hello, Tom. Yes. Go ahead. Yeah. Hi. It's Tom. Uh, Yeah. Just a quick question. Uh, My backyard's been invaded by dwarf bamboo. Um, Short of using nuclear weapons, I can't (laughs) seem to get get rid of the stuff. Uh, interested if you have any suggestions. Uh, basically, it's going to be a very tough thing to get rid of, and uh, you're going to have to use, like, you know, a t- or if you're not opposed to using Roundup, Roundup for killing woody plants would be the one I'd suggest, but also it's going to kill everything else. There's Bamboo is a grass, and I imagine you've already tried to use the grass killers on it, and they probably haven't been all that effective. So you're going to have to, kill, you know, let's say cordon off certain areas and just kill one patch at a time so you don't have some sort of giant big area that has nothing on it because you've killed off all the bamboo. Yeah, it's pretty pervasive. I I tried last year um, digging it out and putting some weedy gone product on it and... Uh, it's all back again, you know, so. Right. Weed be, we gone, <laughs> weed be Gone kills only broadleaf weeds, and bamboo is a grass. So uh, you have to get a grass killer to have any kind of a chance of killing it. Okay. You got a free Saturday to help me? <laughs> well, my, you know, the Golden Groove bamboo is one that I planted in my parents' yard in Ellisville. I dug it up at the you know Botanical Garden and the Japanese Garden when I worked there. It became so invasive. My mother loved it because the birds loved it. It gets about 15 to 18 feet high, but my father hated it. So as I've said over the years, for Father's Day, that's what I did for him was dig up some of the bamboo roots. 
Well, this started about 20 years ago. I bought a little quartz dwarf bamboo, and I put it in the garden pond. And a few years later, I found a plant growing in the yard. Ah. And, uh, it had broken through the uh, container and sent out some runners. And right. here we are now. So It's yeah. going to be a job, as you already know. Yeah, well, thanks for all the encouragement. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, at least it's green, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, the only other advice I could give you is sell your home. <laughs> yeah, that's crossed my mind, too. <laughs> yeah, pass the baton on to somebody else. Yeah, good idea. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> Certainly. Yeah, bamboo is really, you know, nasty and invasive. Let's go to Joe in Holly Hills. Joe, how are you? You there, Mike? Yes. Hey, I got a question. Uh, first of all, I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller, and I really appreciate your show. But uh, here's my deal. I recently bought a home in the Holly Hills neighborhood, and the previous owner had laid a bunch of white rock down in front of the garage and, you know, in the yard side, and I wanted to remove that and plant vegetables. Well, that's, uh, well I have to go deeper than just scraping the rock off. It's the kind of rock you put under roads, you know, or gravel roads, and then like asphalt on it. So it's maybe some limestone. Oh, if it's limestone, definitely. And you'd have to do that anyway, even if it was chipped marble or anything else. You're going to have okay. to get get rid of all that stuff. And before I'd worry about trying to plant something, I again, I would get a soil test done and find out what the pH is, find out what the nutrients are in there and everything else. It may have super high levels of uh, calcium and who knows what else. But you're going to have to get rid of all that rock. Then you're going to have to add some compost, like a couple inches, three or four inches, blend it in with the existing soil, and then take a look at what the soil test says and then make you know, the amendments that you're going to add beyond just the compost, let's say, reflect what the soil test indicates as far as being extravagant levels of something. Stay away from that. You know, really diminish or hardly any of this particular thing. So if you want to have success, you're going to have to work on it maybe even a full year before you do any planting. That's what I was figuring, and I'm prepared to do that. But I was hoping you'd say, scrape it off and play it, Joe. <laughs> well, a lot of people do that, and uh, most of the time they don't have really great success with it. That's what I figured, but just one <laughs> confirmation. Thank you very much, Mike. I Certainly. appreciate you. Great. And now let's go to Greg. Greg is in Winsville. Hi, Greg. Yes. Uh, yeah, hi, hi Mike. Um, I just wanted to uh, piggyback on your conversation uh, that you had about the pre-emergence and going down twice a year. Right. Uh, you did a great job of explaining that. Um, but uh, one conversation that I think we need to have about that and to answer my question, how do we marry uh, grass seed germination, which occurs at a similar time of year, at least in the spring, with putting down a pre-emergence? You can't. Yeah, there lies the problem. Right. Yeah. Now, if you're a professional landscape person with a license, there's actually a few pre-emergence that will not impact grass seed germination, but will impact, let's say, weed seed germination. But it's very specific. It's very, very expensive. And you have to have a pesticide applicator's license to be able to, be able to purchase it. So what you have to do is decide which is most important is getting the weed seed circumstance under control and then going after it, you know, from a standpoint of, you know, going grass seed later on 
like in the following season or whatever it happens to be. So that's what you have to do. Decide what's most important and go from there. I would say, to me, getting the grass seed down, getting the lawn as thick as you can, and then maybe waiting until the following year to put the pre-emergent down would be my advice. Okay. And then you could always hit it hard every year in the, in the you know, late season uh, to put the grass seed down and try to get it to germinate and get just uh, old enough to where it will overwinter. Right. And w- there's actually okay. t- September, if you're talking about cool season grass seed, which I'm... You're, right. You're, that's, I mean, September is the ideal time to do that. So you could go after the weeds, but you're only going to get rid of the cool season weeds, you know, by putting the pre-emergent down, uh, or the warm season weeds by putting the pre-emergent down when the forsythia is in bloom, and then wait to put the grass seed down in, you know, September. Right. Okay. Very good. Thank you. Certainly. Okay. Bye. And now let's go to Mary, and she's in Crystal City. Oops. Oops. Sorry. Yes, go ahead. Hi. I have another weed question. Uh, Last summer, all of a sudden, I had what appears after checking the Internet to be Creeping Charlie. And, I mean, it has taken over several of my beds. Are you familiar with that weed? Yes. What do I do? It's an annual weed, so, again, the pre-emergent is what you need to do. Okay, and do I wait till August? This information here says spring yes, and so, fall. Well, and it's not going to do, do any good to put it down twice. But if the, you know if they're recommending that you put it down twice, if you want to do that, you can certainly do it. But uh, it is you know it's one that I would just go after it in the springtime. Okay, one other question. It says that a more organic approach would be to use borax. Like Farty Mule Team, have you ever heard of that? And do you know if that's effective? I don't know if it's effective. I mean, there are there are organic products that you can use as a pre-emergent, like corn gluten and things like that. But I've okay. never heard of using borax. Okay, well, we'll we'll go with with the expert, which is you. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you. Certainly. And now, Bill in downtown O'Fallon, Missouri. Hi, Bill. Appreciate your program and what you do. Just a couple of quick questions. Number one, uh, we have plants that are protruding. I'm talking about bulbous type things, daffodils, jonquils, that kind of thing, beginning to poke their way up, even tulips. And so um, should we take any precaution uh, with this uh, really frigid uh, Sunday night coming up? There's really no need to because what's going to happen, the only thing you're really seeing for those bulbs that you mentioned, is the foliage. So it's not the flower buds or anything else. So what's going to happen, depending upon the exposure and everything else, is the tips of the leaves that are sticking up may turn brown. But there's still going to be full leaves coming up beyond those tips that are exposed right now. And they'll, they'll be fine. They'll help build up the bulb for next year. Now, there's certain things like crocus, winter aconite, snowdrops that are up and actually flowering. And you can't really do anything for them. It, the cold may kill the flowers off, but those are pretty tough bulbs. They're minor bulbs, and a lot of times they can handle regardless of how cold it gets. But for the most part, there's nothing that you need to do as far as emerging foliage from any type of bulb that you're seeing. All right. Hey, thank you. Uh, that will save us some work then. Um, <laughs> the um, elephant ears, my wife uh, is really taking a liking to them. And she she wants to get several. 
my question is, does the size of the bulb, the ball, does that have anything to do with the size of the uh, plant as it matures during the summer, or can a smaller ball still have a large plant? The larger the bulb, the bigger the foliage is going to be. Okay. Ultimately, the small bulbs can get to be bigger bulbs, and then consequently, year after year after year, you can end up with big leaves. But uh, initially, if you want big leaves, what you could do is do a mixture, get some of the really, let's say, larger bulbs, and then get some of the smaller bulbs. You can get those now if you want to and put them in pots inside and put them in front of a sunny window and get them to sort of like get moving, but you're not going to really be able to put them out weather-wise for the most part until mid to late April, maybe early May. So they shouldn't be put in maybe a half a glass of water or something like that to get them moving or no. just let them get in the sunlight? Or no, what? you should just put them in a potting mix and then just take them outside when you want to plant them. You know, pull them out of the pot and stick them in the ground or just put them in a bigger pot outside. Should they be harvested every fall? You, for elephant ears, yes. I mean, I've, been, I've had some that are like 20-plus years old. And uh, so I've just, every year I, you know, continue to do it. Sometimes I just, I have too many. And the same with, you know, a lot of the cannas, some of the other bulbs, we're finding out that they can withstand if they're close to buildings in a protected location. They can stay out every year winter through every other season as well but the elephant ears i have i've tried it and they've definitely just you know frozen hey um you mentioned cannas and that's the last thing here cannas i like them i like the shape of their leaves and sometimes the leaves are colored a little bit one way or the other but the flowering part of the canna is not very long and after that i'm not sure it looks all that pretty uh, do you have any recommendation if you're going to have a taller bulb plant uh, in an area that you want to be kind of a centerpiece, what would you recommend to put in there? Or would you go with the canna? I would say the cannas are the toughest or the most durable. And by far, some of the varieties, some of the ones I have now, get six to seven feet high. Okay. Listen, again, you've been very kind, and I appreciate it. Well, great. Mike Miller, KMOX Garden Hotline, back after these messages. This is the St. Louis Composting Garden Hotline with your host, Mike Miller, on KMOX. Yes, folks, any questions, concerns, or comments, 314-436-7900 or 1-800-925-1120. Let's go to Campsville, Illinois, and see what's going on with Lou. Hi, Lou. Hello, good morning. Hi. I don't dissuade anyone from being cordial, but I wouldn't worry about how many times you say you know <laughs> when 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 people say how are you after you've heard that ten times already. <laughs> and I know that's a cordial greeting, you know. Sure. But uh, anyway, and I've been listening so long. Uh, one of the things I was concerned or, or was wanted to talk about was on Lespedeza. Uh you know, I I kind of discovered didn't know as long as long as I've been around that there was a Lespedeza weed, but we always we had milk cows, and we have Lespedeza in the pasture. Right. And and that's the small creeping kind, you know. And the Jersey cows especially, uh, the more of that they ate, the, the better the milk and the cream was. And I don't know whether people know about any of that kind. I I just learned not too long ago about the Lespedeza so-called weed which I guess is what people maybe is having. Is that the 
the crux of the matter is probably just the Lespedeza weed. Yeah, it's basically the kind of the same thing. It's just when they're invasive in lawns, they're not as good as when we're talking. What you're talking about, as far as in pastures for cows. Yeah, and I have it on my lawn, and I don't worry about it. Same as I don't worry about the clover because I like the bees to have the clover and and all that too. And you know, we always planted clover to replenish the soil, certain things in the soil too. Yeah, nitrogen. Yeah. And so anyway, but uh, I don't know whether I don't see any Lespedeza right now at this time of the year that grows, you know, like in my my yard, close to the ground. Right. But uh, I, I, I don't think people are aware there's two kinds. So. And same way as the comments about violets, you know, get rid of the violets. Well, I love violets. Let them grow. I ain't going <laughs> to mow them down later, you know. Yeah. And by the way, I have some friends that listen to KMOX, and they tell me, well, I heard you on KMOX this morning calling in. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks for the program. I've only been listening since I was a little kid 80 years ago with my dad to the farm programs and all that from right. 5 o'clock in the morning on. Great. So, Anyway, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Thanks, Lou. Yeah, my wife, Tracy, she likes violets, too. So whenever I get rid of the violets, I have to do it when she's gone, you know, when she's at the store or something. I say, I don't know what happened to the violets. They just disappeared, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) That'll get you in deep trouble. Yes, it will. (laughs) It's hard to keep some of those stories straight. Thanks, Lou. Sure. Bye. And let's go now out to Defiance and into Bob's yard. Hi, Bob. Hi. How are you today? Very good. Listen, uh, we moved into this house about a year and a half ago, I guess, and had a swimming pool, and it was completely surrounded by uh, kudso and shrubs and trees and everything, and there was a large tree hanging over the the pool. Ooh. So we cleared out all the shrubbery and, and got all of that, dug it up, dug the roots out and all, trimmed the tree back. We had wood ants. We got rid of the wood ants. Now we have flying ants that are attracted to the pool. And when they land in the water, and if you're in the pool, they bite you. Woo! And I, we've been trying to figure out a way to get rid of the flying wood ants and have not found anything that works. We spray, we spray for mosquitoes in the summertime every month, so there's, uh, that's taken care of. But I just thought you might have an idea about flying wood ants. Yeah, no, I really don't. But what I would do is go to the University of Missouri Extension Service. They have locations in every county and talk to them and find out what they would recommend. Okay. I appreciate it. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, it's uh, that. I mean, that's really a tough situation. So uh, beyond unless we've been talking a lot about weeds and everything else, but there are going to be, well, this gentleman was just talking about uh, insects and bugs. As it, ground temperatures warm up, you know, which encourages or actually triggers weed germination. Also, other things that are happening at the same time is the grubs, which are five different types of grubs that are found in our region, start migrating up near the surface. And one of the the annual grub, that's the one that does the major damage to the bluegrass. But there's another grub out of the five that's the Japanese beetle grub. And so... What they do is they come up near the surface in a short period of time, then they're going to morph into actually adults and then come out and then start doing some damage. And the Japanese beetles, some of the plants that they really do some major damage to are a lot of the maples, the maple sugar maples and the red maples both, as well as the Japanese maple. 
So boxwood, yes. You don't think of boxwood being damaged by Japanese maple? And maybe yours hasn't been yet, but who knows? They can be damaged as well. The hollies, damaged as well. Let's see. Uh, lilacs, I haven't seen that. But uh, this is a list of things by the University of Missouri that says Japanese beetles. So they've been getting worse and worse and worse and worse as time has gone on. So we see them and we know that they're going after crab apples or going after very specific things where they eat everything in between the veins of the plant and they leave the veins and it's really kind of scary. They're very shiny. They're relatively small beetle. A lot of people just pluck them off into bowls of soapy water and that kills them. But just keep in mind the Japanese beetles, they're going to be out and about real soon. And if you start seeing major areas in your bluegrass of, let's say, dead bluegrass lawn, it could be a disease, but also it could be the Japanese beetle. The Japanese beetle cuts the root system off. So the areas that are brown, just go out and try to pull it up just gently. And what if you have a Japanese beetle problem, it's going to come up like a piece of carpet. So that's a good way to tell. And if you haven't had a history of Japanese beetles, you wonder, how can they possibly be here now? Well, the adults fly, they lay the eggs, the eggs penetrate into the ground after they hatch, and then they go through their life cycle and then consequently come back and get worse and worse and worse and worse. It's sort of tragic. Luckily, I have a zoysia lawn, but I still have grubs in my lawn. They don't do the damage, but anytime I'm fooling around with anything and I see any grubs, I... Well, what I do is I pick them up and throw them out in the street and just watch them kind of fry. <laughs> That's kind of mean of me. But anyway, anybody has questions at all, 314-436-7900 or 1-800-925-1120. And I will see you after the news. KMOX is at your service. Welcome to the St. Louis Composting Garden Hotline. Now, here's your host, Mike Miller on KMOX. <laughs> Somebody just called in and asked Ryan what the current temperature was. It's 35. Hasn't gone up too much <laughs> since like uh, 6 o'clock this morning or 5.30 whenever I got up. Actually, I got up a little bit earlier than that. But anyway, folks... This is the second hour of the Garden Hotline, and it's a tip of the trowel. I'll be giving that shortly, but right now you can call 314-436-7900 or 1-800-925-1120. We're a little bit awkward with taking the calls and everything else because we're integrating a new system, and uh, that's what, you know, what happens. Sometimes there's a few bumps in the road, so just be patient and everything else, but we will get to you and you can talk about your ideas, your questions, your concerns, or your comments. And thanks for having me on your show. We can discuss everything from plant selection, cares, ups and downs, and all around. How about pansies? They're the cool season annual that I think, you know, there are a couple other ones that are available, but pansies are the ones most of us think of in the springtime. And I don't think any of the garden centers have them yet. But uh, how about your bulbs, your daffodils, your tulips, and things like that? My daffodils are probably, a couple of them are a little bit more protected, so the foliage is about two and a half, maybe three inches. Other areas where they're more exposed, 
they're not quite that long. They're only about a half inch to an inch tall. How about the edibles, your cool season edibles, your lettuces and things like that? How are they doing? Ooh, if it gets too cold, hmm, might be a little bit rough on them. Your ground covers, your house plants, your lawn, your perennials, your roses, your trees, your shrubs, your vines, your water gardens. And, yeah, make sure you don't get a lot of debris in collecting in your water garden, especially if you have fish, because that debris, fallen leaves and everything else, as it rots in the water, can become toxic to your fish. So just keep that in mind. But please remember my answers, comments, concerns, and opinions. It's not the only garden path to take. So it's offered to you to just think about. And that way you can make, hopefully, a better educated decision on what approach you want to take. And across the big board is Greg Harvey. He is having to run all over the place because of the system we have, you know, being, as I said before, a new system. And so he's really doing a great job today. And uh, during the week, I do landscape consulting, which I call a walk and talk. If you'd like for me to come to your home, help you problem solve or anything else, or maybe add some aesthetic quality to areas, you can go to my website, MikeMillerDesigns.com. On the homepage, that's my email and phone number will be right there. And you can contact me and I'll come over and spend, you know, spend some time with you in your yard and uh, 40 years of experience, 40 plus years actually. The tip of the trowel is a special recognition for individual group or a situation that's made an impression on me and is brought to you by St. Louis Composting, 636-861-3344. Uh, plant societies and garden groups, that is such a perfect way, whether you're new or whether you've been doing something for a long time, there's going to be somebody that probably has a little bit of a tip that's going to make it better for you as far as care-wise, the amount of maintenance that you need for your plant material, or how to get a, you know, a little bit more pizzazz at them. So let's say a group like the Gardeners of Florissant or the Gardeners of St. Charles County. The Garden Society of Wildwood, or for right now, what about the St. Louis Daffodil Society, Greater St. Louis Dahlia Society, the Dahlias now, they're tube, tubers, sunflower family that are basically need to be dug up every year, but they're in the summertime, they are spectacular depending upon the variety. They can be massive as far as single flowers can be huge, or the actual plant can be with smaller flowers really big as well. And the St. Louis Orchid Society. Orchids, every store you go into now has orchids. I mean, they're just overwhelmingly beautiful and they're really pretty darn easy to take care of. But you go, well, I don't know how to do that. Gardeners, yes. Orchid lovers, yes. St. Louis Orchid Society. So just go to Missouri Botanical Garden website and you can find out about all the different plant societies that meet at the Botanical Gardens and just kind of keep your eyes and ears open because even locally, you're not going to necessarily meet if you're in Florence and go down to the Botanical Garden meet. But there's probably announcements saying, if you'd like to join the gardeners of Florence, this is what you need to do. So lots of great stuff going on. Mike Miller, KMOX Garden Hotline. We will be back after these messages. KMOX is the weather station. Get the forecast here every 10 minutes, mornings and afternoons, with weather bulletins at once. On the voice of St. Louis, KMOX. Welcome back to the St. Louis Composting Garden Hotline. Once again, here's Mike Miller on KMOX. 
Yes, folks, we're headed to the phones and we're heading out to Chesterfield. John, how are you? I'm pretty good. How are you doing this morning? Good. Hey, I got to follow up on the Japanese beetle thing. Sure. Um, grape vines. Um, about 10 years ago, I got two dozen grape plants and I did the five year thing and all that. About six, seven years ago, the Japanese beetles started on the great, I only had three in my backyard here in Chesterfield, and I'd buy those uh, trap things. Right. And it seemed, the only thing that did was made them worse every year. <laughs> <laughs> About four years ago, all of a sudden, the Japanese beetles invaded the Lake of the Ozarks area, and those plants there were doing well because they got the right soil and, and sun, and they decimated the, um, the foliage. Right. So I tried seven. That didn't really do much. Then I I think something I heard from you. So I looked at, into the uh, granular insecticide, and I spent the extra money to get Grubex, and it works. Absolutely. Uh, it, around my yard here, had, I only had to spray seven once in sort of like mid-June. They were gone. At, down at the lake, uh, it was a substantial reduction. They weren't all gone, but it really helped down there so they didn't and what's on that whole long list you gave on just before your break i have a few of those plants and they didn't bother any of them including a japanese uh, maple i guess they just they like the grapes better right so it's just it's a roll of the dice those are just ones that if you do have them that you know that could be something that could be have major damage and the grub x definitely works i mean that kills them in the soil the sevens and you know insecticides like that are contact killers, so it has actually hit the insect. So the right, difference yeah. is, you know, you're hitting the adult after they're coming up out of the ground, where the grub X kills them while they're still in the ground. Yeah, the seven just slowed down the, the uh, chewing on the on the foliage. Right. Yeah. So it, I, it, don't bother with those stupid traps. They make it worse. <laughs> Spend the money on the grillbacks. <laughs> well, at the National Park at the Arch or whatever I'm supposed to call that rather than the Arch Grounds, they used to have the traps. And the traps, what that is, is a smell of female you know, Japanese beetles. And then the males are drawn to that smell. But what it does is, you know, what they have found, they've even stopped using them on the Arch Grounds, is you know they don't do them anymore because it like you said it attracts more and more and more in because you know, not all of them are going to necessarily go into the trap and then you have a bunch of males and females and you got more in your grubs in your ground. Yeah, the first time I used them at my lake house, I had put three of them out within an hour. All three were totally full. <laughs> That's scary. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Great. Thanks, John. You are. Now let's go to Don, and Don lives in Baldwin. Hi, Don. Good morning. How are you? I'm very good. Listen, uh, last weekend when we had that heavy, heavy wind, uh, I had a neighbor who had a big pine tree, and uh, that pine tree, maybe with a little bit uh, damaged somewhere along the line, went over, and it the roots, the ball of the roots just came out of the ground, and it went over. And uh, I have a couple of big pine trees in my yard, and I was wondering – uh, can I walk around those pine trees to detect if there's any weakness in the soil around them that would suggest that they would be susceptible to strong winds? Uh, no, there's nothing you're going to be able to tell until actually it acts, you know, whatever is going to cause this, you know, the wind factor and everything else does its deal. 
So you can't go around. There's going to be surface roots. There's going to be all this other stuff. But you're not going to be able to tell unless the trunk is tilted in a direction that, where the winds, you can tell which way the winds came from. Consequently, it tilts the tree in an opposite direction in, or broken roots on the surface. But beyond that, there's no way to tell that potentially you could have more problems with the next wind situation that comes up. Uh, are pine trees more susceptible to wind because of the root system than other trees might be? Well, they're going to be more susceptible due to the fact that they have needles. So that kind of creates a sail. And then consequently, the wind blows and you know catches the needles and there's more resistance. And there is a potential problem as a result of that. Where trees that lose their leaves have less wind resistance because they don't have any foliage on them. But uh, other than that, no, there's not that much difference. Okay, well, thank you. That's very helpful. Appreciate uh, appreciate what you had to say. Great. Well, thank you. And also, I mean, Carondelet Park is very near where we live, and Carondelet Park has lost some major trees, deciduous mm-hmm. trees and evergreen trees, pines, spruce, whatever, in this last wintertime. I mean, there's one actually in the Boathouse Lake right now that got snapped off. So it's you just don't know, you know, what it's going to be and when it's going to happen and everything else. It's almost like a very specific location where a problem is there, and you there's no way to detect it's going to happen. Okay. Well, thank you. Yep. And now let's go to Gillespie, Illinois. Jeff, how are you? Uh, fine. How are you, Mike? Good. Uh, uh, I'm. So, yeah. Thanks for your show, <laughs> first. But uh, I'm sorry to be beat to death this uh, pre-emergent problem. But uh, this year, I finally decided I would get excited. My Their cool season grass are just killing me. So I went to Rural King to buy pre-emergent. And uh, they say, you know, they got their great big long row of uh, garden chemicals and mm-hmm. everything out. And I couldn't find anything that was really labeled pre-emergent. So what kind of name am I looking for uh, in chemicals to be putting down? I would probably just go online and put pre-emergent in, and that would be the best way because every you know every company, every store is going to be looking at you know, or they're going to have their own product. So, or not necessarily every store, but that's probably the better way to do it. Or go to the extension service and see which you know one the University of Illinois Extension Service recommends. But there are several out there. I mean, there's a lot of them. Most of them are not chemically. I couldn't tell you the specific names of them because there's several of them. But I mean, the people even use organic products like corn gluten, which is a natural organic as a pre-emergent. So there's several, and uh, it's just going to be a little bit of research on your part to decide or define which one is going to be the best for you. I see. Okay. Well, thank you. Certainly. And. As far as uh, Japanese beetles goes, uh, <clears throat> I found up here uh, that uh, smartweed really—they just love the smartweeds. <laughs> really? So if you could plant a bed of smartweeds <laughs> and then get out there and use your contact killer on them, <laughs> and, and also they uh, congregate in my asparagus tops, and I think the females get in. It's a social event. They're not eating them, but uh, they're up there breeding. Oh, you're so kidding! I just go out there. I go out there and pick them and kill them. So I'm I'm sure it's not effective on, in the long range, but it uh, makes me feel good anyway. Absolutely, and I've never really heard of them, you know, going after or being hanging around asparagus. So that's something totally new to me. Yeah, well, the last two or three years they've been doing it. So I just 
start going out there and picking them. (laughs) (laughs) It's too bad. (laughs) They are just ferocious. And it's too bad, you know, how they've migrated across the country. And uh, it's it's really decimating. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. It's really one world when it comes to the uh, plant plant stuff. Absolutely. I had... I, I lived up in Des Plaines, and I had to take three great, big, beautiful ash trees down in my yard because of the uh, 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 the Chinese beetle. Yeah, the emerald emerald borer, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, everyone better start planning on replacing their ashes down here because there's really no stop to them. No, there isn't. And they're, I mean, they're showing up. The city of St. Louis is taking out a lot of trees, not necessarily just ash trees, other trees that are getting a little bit aged that are more prone to, let's say, insect problems or disease problems. So a lot of street trees are being removed at various locations, at least in the South City area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I remember when all the elm trees were around, right. great, big, beautiful elm trees Absolutely. up and down the streets, and they're all gone. And So things evolve and change. They certainly do. Well, thanks, Jeff. Thanks. Thank you, Mike. Bye. Yep. And now Collinsville is where Gary lives. Yes, uh, good morning, Mike. Good morning. I got a question. Uh, you mentioned uh, that guy was talking about his horse in an area, and he was wanting to know what time. When is the soonest that I could do that and, and then top dress it? Do I, and then also, do I put my seed down first before I top dress it? Or uh, wait until after I top dress it and then kind of rake it in? And then uh, now, a couple couple weeks ago, I called you about trimming my um, weeping cherry tree. Mm-hmm. I was, and you said it was okay to do it now. Um I was wondering how would it hurt it if I waited after it bloomed because the wife said that she really liked it. I mean, it was like a cob and that there when I came home. And I'm, I'm gone from next month. I'll be gone off and on through the whole month of uh, June almost. I'll be turkey hunting. And that's why I'm kind of wanting to know about when I can, how soon can I aerate. Uh, the core aeration on cool season lawns, as long as the ground is not frozen or it's not super wet, you can pretty much do it any time. You want to do it before, you know, the, let's say the, the new surge of growth comes you know, when it gets a little bit warmer. So now is a good time to do it. I mean, if you can get it done now and do the, you know, spreading the compost on top of it. And if you're putting, if you want to put some seed down, I would probably core aerate, then I'd put the seed down, and then I'd put the compost top dressing over that. Okay. Oh, uh, um, now, would it hurt to trim that tree, my uh, cherry tree, after it blooms? No, not at all. I always encourage people to wait until spring flowering trees and shrubs bloom and then prune them. Because it's, why not take advantage of all the buds that are sitting there? I'm just hopeful with my fingers crossed that this cold weather, because some of the buds are really starting to push open, not just on flowering buds, but foliage buds as well on a lot of different plants, that it doesn't get so cold that it's going to actually kill these buds, and then it's going to be a really horribly painful, slow recycling process where the tree, shrub, or whatever pushes out new bulbs or new buds, and then we may have a really weird year when it comes to aesthetic value of a lot of different plants. Yeah, I noticed that on my uh, tulip tree. Uh, another question: When I spread, when you when I put the grub X down and that there, it, would it hurt to get into my vegetable garden? Uh, not really. I mean, it's okay. 
I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, so I mean, it's it's gonna if you've got grubs in there, it, you know, they're gonna okay. get rid of the grubs. All right, thank you very much. Yep. I mean, some people that are organic, they don't want to put an insecticide in there in their vegetables because, you know, I guess some of the plants could t- uptake it, but that's not really going to be the case. So, anyway, let's All go right. now to Joanne in South County. Oh, I was wondering, uh, when is the best time to trim clematis? Uh, how old are they? Well, it's been out there in my yard, but we've transplanted it a couple of times. I would say about four years. Uh, you really don't need what you just want to prune it because it's too wild and crazy, or what? Uh, I guess I guess maybe that's what you would call. Well, it's got all this dead stuff looking on it, you know. Well, and for the most part, all this stuff that looks dead is going to push out foliage and potentially flowers. So if you prune it, you could mess up the cycle. I would, yeah, I would just leave them alone. Just let nature take its course, huh? Absolutely. Okay, Mike, that's what I'll do. I uh, I trimmed it a couple of years ago, but but it it was slow coming back with flowers. The year I mean last year it was just covered with flowers. So that's, you know, if you've had that good luck, I would say don't mess around with it, just leave it alone. Just leave it alone. Yep. Okay, thanks so much. Have a good day. Certainly. Mike Miller KMOX Garden Hotline back after these messages. This is the St. Louis Composting Garden Hotline with your host, Mike Miller, on KMOX. Yes, folks, it's a relay. (laughs) Back and forth and back and forth. Lou lives in St. Louis. Hi, Lou. Oh, hi, uh, Mike. Um, You were mentioning um, different um, plant societies, and uh, I'd just like to put in a plug for the uh, Greater St. Louis Iris Society. Um, we're having a, a meeting uh, tomorrow at one o'clock, and it's a presentation by uh, Marty Schaefer and Jan Sachs from Massachusetts, who are world-renowned Siberian Iris hybridizers. Ooh. Now the meeting will be at one o'clock at the CBEC building at the Missouri Botanical Garden, but that's not the main building of the um, Botanical Garden. Um, if you, you go on Shaw to that little street that's just east of O'Connell's, and you turn on that and then head back west, um, the parking lot for the CBEC building will be accessible by the first open gate that's on your right, and you go into the parking lot, and the CBEC building is um, all the way at the end of the parking lot, at the east end of the parking lot. And you just go into that building and all the way down the hall, and the meeting room will be on the right. Again, that will be at 1 o'clock. And um, we'd love to have you or anyone else listening or anyone. Um, if anyone has any questions about it, um, they can call our secretary, Erin Chen. Her number is 314-369-3560. 314-369-3560. It'll be a great, a great experience, and we'll have um, um, snacks, too. And everybody should really have a really great time there. So I just wanted to get that out. Well, great. Well, thanks, Lou. Yeah, Siberian iris, I like them better than the Japanese iris personally, and I like them better than the traditional flags that we have. So they're one of my favorites. So thank you very much for that insight and information. 
Now let's go to Creevecore. Marty, how are you? I'm fine, Mike. Thanks for taking the call. Say, last uh, season, last summer and fall, was by far the worst mole infestation I've ever had here. And uh, I want to get started early on trying to find something to get these rascals out of my yard. (laughs) There's no getting them out. Basically, the traps are the most effective control, whether it's a Victor Spear or Choker Loop Trap. And you're going to have to wait until the moles start moving, and the moles don't start moving until the earthworms start moving, because that's their main diet. So as earthworms crawl, they make a sound, and that's what tra- you know. That's how the mole tunnels go the directions they do, is because they're trying to find the earthworm. It has the grubs are just appetizers, and that not their, that has nothing to do with really mole control. Again, it's just going to get the traps. Watch for the tunnels to pop up, the surface tunnels, that's the feeding tunnels, and then get a couple traps, set them along the area that you think that has popped up most recently. And after one or two days, if you get nothing, you're going to have to move them to a new area where the tunnels are popping up again. So this, uh, I guess as soon as the ground gets a little bit more pliable, I should... Uh, flatten everything out so I can uh, see where those tunnels pop up. Is Absolutely, that that's exactly right. And and a grub treatment uh, really won't do anything. No, because that's not their main diet. Their main diet is earthworms. Okay, very good. Thank you for your advice. I appreciate everything you do here. Sure. Well, thank you. And yeah, I mean, what happens is the mole is headed towards the sound of the earthworms. Grubs don't move. They come up to the surface, and they pretty much stay kind of right where they are. I mean, they eat the root systems. They'll move a little bit. But earthworms are constantly moving. That's where the moles are headed. Now, when they're going across, you know, and popping up at the, at the surface, and they come across a grub, of course, they're going to eat it. But that's not what they're going after. Then after they eat the grub, then they're going to head back and go after the earthworm sound. So that's what happens. Now let's go to Ron in South City. <laughs> Ron, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Okay, great. <laughs> Ron, are you, let's go. I'm still here. Okay. okay. Uh, you were mentioning Japanese beetles attacking holly trees. I've got two huge trees. They're not bushes. They're 10 to 12 feet tall, about 10 feet wide. Is that a problem with the Japanese beetle? I don't want to lose them. Well, you're not, you know, I'm just saying those are one of the plants that are potentially an attractive or attractive plant to Japanese beetles. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get them. Okay, it's just I haven't a, had them yet. Yeah, well, then keep your fingers crossed. <laughs> That's... That's a good fertilizing requirement. Exactly right. So, I mean, healthy and just it's luck of the draw more so than anything else. Like I've seen yards where there's been devastation due to the Japanese beetles. And two houses down, there's no evidence on the same type of plants of any Japanese beetle activity at all. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Hey, the crossing finger sounds about the only thing I can do right, right. now. Right. Uh, you know, even if you put the grub X down, that could, you know, and you have grubs in your yard because that could, you know, will, will kill them. But that doesn't mean Japanese beetles might not migrate from a couple of houses down or who knows from how far away and uh-huh. and see your hollies and then say, I want to head for the holly. 
Do do the holly trees attract them? Not necessarily. They're not on the high list, but they're just ones that could potentially have damage. Understand. Hey, I appreciate your program and uh, your information. Well, thank you for for a good day. Well, thank you. And yeah, the reason why the let's say things like holly are not necessarily that attractive is because the holly leaf is really kind of waxy. And so the Japanese beetles have a tendency to go after leaves that are a little bit easier to eat. But if they're desperate, it's like deer in the wintertime. A lot of times they won't go after certain things. But if it's a horrible winter, they could possibly eat them. And the same with the Japanese beetles. So thank you very much, Ron. And now let's go to Belleville. Dave. Good morning, Mike. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I have a question about daffodils. Um I've got a friend that has some property. It's commercial property, and it, but it's overgrown with a lot of trees. And, and, man, he's got hundreds of clumps of daffodils. And I've, I've done a little bit of research on Google, but I, generally speaking, they say, well, the best time to transplant them is after they flower or after they're done flowering and, and the leaves turn yellow, whatever. But I found one site, and you have to be careful what you, when you Google things. You can't believe everything you, you read. So that's why I'm calling you to see if it's uh, right now, if I can go out there and get a big enough clump of dirt surrounding each clump of daffodils. Can I transplant those? It's not advisable to do. What you might do is just disrupt the flowering cycle. But yeah, you give it a shot. I mean, that's not the advised thing. What you said initially was after the foliage starts turning brown, that's the ideal time to do it. But you can give it a try. I mean, a lot of times what people will do is buy, let's say, daffodils that are in flower in a retail circumstance, bring them home and enjoy the flowering and actually plant them outside and have good luck with them in the future. So this is even ones that are flowering where you're talking about ones that just the foliage is coming up. So just so you get plenty of soil, probably I'd water them the night before or the day before if you can, or at least before you start digging them and just, I don't know how deep these are planted. Usually your advice is six to eight inches down, so you're going to have quite the hole to dig. So beyond that, I would say give it a try. Yep. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, sir. Well, thank you. And now let's go, wow, Winsville again, and this time into Shirley's yard. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Uh, this call, this call uh, concerns the gentleman that called about the, the molds. Mm-hmm. Last, last year, you had a gentleman to call uh, for uh, something that took care of him. And what he used, and I think he said he had killed about 80, um, he used cayenne pepper, and he put it in honey, and he would go to the, the rums that were active and make a hole in there and put a lot of that uh, cayenne honey in there and then kind of put it around the outside also. I did that last year, and they disappeared fast. You're kidding. I remember that call, but, you know, unless, you know, if somebody calls and says they've had really good luck with something, a lot of times, you know, it's not a universal circumstance, so that's why I don't kind of repeat some of those type things. But if you had great luck with it, thanks for calling. I greatly appreciate it. I'm assuming that's what took care of them, but right after I did that, they were gone. Okay. <laughs> a little okay. bit too, yeah, a little bit too spicy for them. <laughs> yeah, and I used a lot of cayenne pepper. Right. Well, that's great. Okay. I mean, there are products. There's a product called Kaputs 
which you inject into mold tunnels, surface tunnels, which are, more or less simulates what an earthworm is. And the mole would come along its tunnel and say, oh, wow, here's an earthworm. Eat it. And then consequently, it's poisonous and then kill them that way. So there are other sort of marginal products. But, uh, you know, the traps are the ones that the, for the last 40 or 50 years that have proven the most effective. And there's been right. gentlemen you know, or people that have called and said they watch for the tunnel movement on the surface, then go out with a shovel and dig them up and throw them up, you know, onto the surface and then chop their heads off and all kinds of crazy stuff. I've done that, too. <laughs> You're tough. <laughs> I am. little country girl. <laughs> Perfect. I mean, sometimes you've got to be vicious because these animals, you know, rodents or whatever, they don't care. And they're there, and they don't mind what they're going to do to your, pl- your property, your plant material, or anything else. That's true. Okay. I enjoy your show. Well, thanks. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, and... Uh, Basically, moles do not eat plant roots. What they do is they tunnel around and they cause, and they can go in and under roots, and that causes dehydration of the roots. So they don't specifically eat roots themselves. They're strictly carnivores. But another sort of disadvantage of the mole tunnels is the fact that voles, V-O-L-E-S, they do eat roots. And what they do is they use old abandoned mold tunnels because they know they're going to go underneath plant material and then they go into the mold tunnel and again they're abandoned ones and then they eat roots of plant material so there's a kind of a symbiotic relationship between the two moles do all the work then the voles come back and you know sort of have the harvest or the buffet line from all the mole activities mike miller kmox garden hotline back after these messages Joey Vitale here, and we have some Saturday night hockey for you as the St. Louis Blues take on the Dallas Stars tonight in a big Central Division battle. The pregame show starts at 6.30 and face-off at 7 right here on KMOS. Let's go, Blues! Welcome back to the St. Louis Composting Garden Hotline. Once again, here's Mike Miller on KMOX. To the phones we go. We're headed to Kirkwood. Greg, how's, how are you and how's your yard? Oh, hi, hi Mike. Uh, yard's fine. I just had a question about a um, an evergreen hedge that I have out in front near the street. It's probably about 40 years old, and it looks like, I'm not sure what type of hedge it is, but it kind of looks like a Fraser fir, but it's a big, bushy hedge. So I would, I would assume it's an evergreen. And I uh, have always put wood ash on that, and I've noticed lately that the things are looking a little yellow, and I'm wondering if that should be treated more like uh, an azalea as far as uh, you know, acid or iron sulfate or something like that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, putting the wood ash on it, you're adding calcium, you're adding some things, but also you could be going contrary to you know, what they're at, you know, the plant actually needs as far as a soil pH. You may have altered the pH, and the, now the yellowing could be related to the weather also. But I would say stay away from putting the wood ash on if you've done it routinely for even a few years or just every couple years because you probably don't – the plants don't need it and you may be doing damage as opposed to good. But again, the yellowing could be strictly as a result of this harsh weather that we had in January and you know, early in February. Yeah, we put a small uh, Japanese holly in next to the house, a small bush, and I would do the same thing. I kind of treated it that way, but it, it, it looked really pretty bad. So I stopped and 
been putting a little iron sulfate on it, and hopefully that'll green it up, you know, make it a little bit better. But uh, I was going kind of crazy with wood ash uh, about the last year. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people do, and it could be, you know, to the advantage of the plants, but sometimes if it's overdone, it could be to the disadvantage. It's just like fertilizing, where the last two numbers on a fertilizer bag are phosphorus and potassium. People continue to put this more or less the same numbers down, and they get a soil test done. They find they have extravagant levels of phosphorus and potassium, which do damage to the root systems. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks, Mike. I'm a, I'm a fellow uh, Baldwin slash Ellisville. Uh, we moved out there in '55, and Manchester was about 30 feet wide, and the, it was only a few <laughs> subdivisions out there. And, Played in Fishpot Creek and just, you know, had a great time. Yeah, great. Well, you moved out a year before we did. We moved out there in 56, so. Uh, yeah, they, they, we were in one of the first subdivisions off of Manchester there. Oh, you're uh, kidding. opened up after World War II, yeah. Wow. Well, great. Little street, well. Call, little street call Highview. I don't know if you know it. Uh, I have to think, but I, it doesn't come ringing a bell it's immediately. Right, <laughs> it's right on the bell, ball and Ellsville line. It's ah. Like, Fine. We almost said Ellisville, but technically we were in Baldwin. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Mike. Yep. And now let's go to Rich Woods. And, Mike, how are you? I'm doing well, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. I wanted to talk to you about uh, this 80-pound yellow lab that I have that tips toes through the yard and stops and tilts his head from one. I mean, this is entertaining. It's really a gas. And when he hears a mole, he pounces, and I, that dog is probably ninety percent effective. You're now, kidding! I, I didn't him to do this, and it, it it is a riot. You know what? I really don't care about the moles. My wife and I live on three hundred and eighty acres, right in the middle of it, and anything he digs up is an easy fix. But just to watch him do this is, like I said, it's a gas. <laughs> He grabs them, digs them up, grabs them, shakes them, and then sort of tosses them, and then go. And then he goes on and looks for another one. It's just, <laughs> it's incredible. We just love watching them. That's a great story. I mean, it's too bad you can't sort of, uh, let's say, start a business saying. Let <laughs> <Right>. me... <laughs> well, then he probably wouldn't do it. But yeah, anyway, that's probably just... true. He just he's more worried about his own yard than he would be about somebody else's. <laughs> Maybe who knows? Anyway, all right. Have a great day. See you, Mike. Yep. Thank you very much. And uh, if anybody else has any questions, we've got a minute or two, 314-436-7900 or 1-800-925-1120. Deep root feeding. That's where you auger holes around trees and shrubs and things like that, backfill those holes with compost. you still got an opportunity to do that. And so, I mean, it's really to the advantage of the plant material. Fertilizing and everything else, that's just absolutely great. But good, healthy soil is how you have better, healthier plants. So that is really a very important time, you know, a type of thing you really should do. And uh, also, I don't know how bad this weather is going to be, you know, the snow or if there's how the winds are going to be, anything along that line. But get out there and take a look because you could have some. The gentleman talked about a tree that got blown over. So I'm not saying you're going to figure out that a tree may be blown over, but you may have some major damage to some of the larger branches that could come crashing down on your cars, on your neighbor's cars, on your house, a neighbor's house, or something along that line. So if you have to go out there, just take binoculars and take a look and see if you can see some major cracks in something. Because that, I mean, 
Nothing is scarier than hearing a tree go down. Let's go now to Chesterfield. Jim? Yes, I have two questions. One is hydrangeas. Can you cut the branches down now, or do you leave them alone and hope that they just rebloom? And then the second one is on uh, knockout roses. Is it too late to trim them back? Not too late on the knockout roses, no, because none of the new growth has happened. But with hydrangeas, I would leave them alone because unless they're, you know, if they're varieties that bloom in the springtime, like the PG hydrangea, if you cut them now, you're cutting off the flowers for this spring. The other varieties, I would just wait, see if there's been some major winter damage due to the cold and to do the pruning. And this is for the varieties that bloom through the summertime or like the oak leaf hydrangea or something like that. So wait until you know how much da- twig damage there might be and do the pruning at that time. How do you determine if there's twig damage? Basically, just how brittle the tips of the branches are. Or some of them are even start discoloring because they've been frozen. So that's a good way to take a look at it, too. But uh, there may, and also you can wait until you start seeing some growth as far as the buds opening up. Because the ones that bloom in the summertime, they're going to push out leaves before they actually push out flower buds. So if you see a stem that has no leaves on it or only leaves on the bottom half that's closer to the ground or to the major branches coming out of, then the tip that doesn't have any new growth foliage-wise I would cut that off. So, in other words, that indicates that those buds have already been frozen. So it has nothing to do with whether the branch is brittle or not, where you could almost crack it off? No, not necessarily. I mean, it could, but, I mean, to do that, some of these shrubs get pretty brittle branches just because of that's the genetics of that particular plant. The flexibility is important, but depending upon the individual plant, if you can snap it off and then look at it and, you know, kind of figure out or t- take a couple cuttings, you know, from a plant and put them in, let's say, a jar of water inside and then see if you, any of the buds open up. That's another way you could try it, too. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Certainly. And I want to thank everybody for calling in. I greatly appreciate it. The Garden Hotline is only here because you're there and there's no getting around it. I appreciate it. And you know... No more you knows. You know, I think I said you know a couple times, though. I'm trying to keep track of it. So I'm going to apologize again for saying you knows. You know? <laughs> you know? You know. Anyway, just have fun. And I, uh, I, I'm sick of winter. And I hope the forecasters were completely wrong about all this stuff, whether it be snow, whether it be cold or anything else. But I know they're probably not wrong. So we're just going to have to bite the bullet and try to make it through the best way we can. And just hopefully there's going to be minimal damage to the plant materials. Mike Miller, KMOX Garden Hotline. I will see you next week. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.